welcome to Anchored by Truth, brought to you by Crystal Sea Books. In John 14.6, Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Our goal is to encourage everyone to grow in the Christian faith by anchoring themselves to the secure truth found in the inspired, inerrant, and infallible Word of God. Greet my relatives, Andronicus and Junia, who were in jail with me. Greet Narcissus and the others in his family who have faith in the Lord. Greet Rufus, that special servant of the Lord, and greet his mother, who has been like a mother to me. Romans chapter 16, verses 7, 11, and 13, Contemporary English Version. Hello, I'm Victoria Kay. Welcome to Anchored by Truth, brought to you by Crystal Sea Books. We're very happy to join you today as we continue forward with our new series on Anchored by Truth. We've entitled this series, Paul's Places. By Paul, we're referring to the Apostle Paul, who wrote at least 13 of the books out of the 27 books that comprise the New Testament. The Apostle Paul, of course, started out life named Saul. But after an encounter on the road to Damascus with the risen Christ, he became the foremost apostle to the Gentiles. God used Paul to write almost half of the New Testament, including the book we're focusing on today, the Epistle to the Romans. To help us learn more about Paul's places, we have R.D. Fierro back in the studio. R.D. is an author and the founder of Crystal Sea Books. R.D., in our last episode, we started focusing on the Book of Romans, but we had so much to say we didn't get finished. Why don't you give us a brief summary of what we learned and where we're heading? Well, I'd like to start by welcoming our listeners to today's episode of Anchored by Truth. The people who regularly listen to Anchored by Truth know that this show is entirely focused on demonstrating the inspiration, inerrancy, and infallibility of Scripture. And they know that sometimes that means we're going to take on subjects that you're not going to hear on other Christian radio shows or podcasts. We're not criticizing any other shows. It's just that we do understand that the listeners to Anchored by Truth, that we're asking them sometimes to probe more deeply into the Scripture and to think more deeply about the story behind the Scripture than they may encounter in some other Christian forums. And we also ask our listeners to think more carefully, very carefully, not only about the Bible itself, but also think about the logic that emerges from a point of view that denies the Bible. Like the fact that if someone denies the truth of Scripture, they would be hard-pressed to explain the large volume of fulfilled prophecy that Scripture contains. The only good explanation for the hundreds of prophecies that we can demonstrate that have been fulfilled is that those prophecies were given to human writers by a God who, in the words of Isaiah chapter 46 verse 10, says, quote, Only I can tell you the future before it even happens, unquote. Denying the authenticity produces an incoherent worldview that cannot explain well-documented historical events. Right. But in order for us to demonstrate in our shows the infallibility, inspiration, inerrancy of Scripture, we not only have to ask our listeners not just to read the Bible, but we also have to ask them to come to know something about ancient history, including the places and cultures that existed thousands of years ago. And that's the big reason we wanted to undertake this study series on Paul's Places. 
Paul's Places is all about the epistles, or letters, that the Apostle Paul wrote to the various churches. And in our Bibles, the titles assigned to those epistles, which we call books, are geographic names like Romans, Corinthians, Philippians, etc. Right again. One of the reasons we can have complete confidence in the accuracy and the truth of the Bible is because you can locate those cities on a map. We know where Rome, Corinth, and Philippi were located during the first century A.D., and we know things about their history that allow us to get greater insight into why a particular epistle or letter was sent to that group, to the church that was in that city. For instance, we know that at the time Paul wrote his letter to the church in Rome, Rome as a city and an empire was pretty much at the peak of its power. So Paul wrote the most complete description of the doctrines and principles of the Christian faith to a church located in the most important city in the empire. And as we mentioned last time, the Roman Empire was where God began the distribution of the gospel. Later, including today, the gospel would spread far beyond the boundaries of the old Roman Empire. But God chose to begin the gospel spread within the Roman Empire. So, at the time Paul wrote Romans, we can be very sure he knew he was writing an important letter to the church located in the most important city of his time. This makes sense. Paul knew his letters would circulate beyond his initial recipient or audience, and he knew people from all over the empire would travel to and through Rome. So it was simply good common sense for him to ensure that the letter he wrote to the church in Rome was a thorough discussion of the foundations of the Christian faith. Wow. (laughs) I guess I sort of answered my own question about summarizing what we've discussed last time. Eh, pretty much. But that still leaves, where do we go from here? You said you wanted to also do today's episode of Anchored by Truth to the Book of Romans. Yes, I do. And today I want to focus on a part of the Book of Romans that I suspect most people just skip right over. I want to think for a little while about the greetings and the salutations. Really? With all the deep doctrine that the Book of Romans contains, you want to go right to the last chapter where there is essentially just a laundry list of the names that Paul sends greetings to? (laughs) Why is that? Because the greetings and salutations help illustrate our fundamental reason for doing this series. Paul's letters, even the seemingly mundane and insignificant details, like the list of people that he sent greetings to, Paul's letters illustrate the coherence of Scripture. And buried in and amongst that list of greetings and salutations contained in Romans, which is one of the most extensive lists of greetings in all of Paul's letters, there are some really interesting names. Such as? Such as the name we heard about in one of our opening scriptures, and that's found in Romans chapter 16, verse 13. Paul told the recipients of his letter to the church in Rome to, and I'm quoting, greet Rufus, that special servant of the Lord and greet his mother, who has been like a mother to me, end quote. Well, obviously Rufus and his mother were pretty special to Paul. But why is his inclusion in this list of greetings so significant? Well, to understand that, we're going to have to flip over to the Gospel of Mark. And so we're going to go to Mark chapter 15, verse 21. In the contemporary English version, that verse reads, quote, Simon from Cyrene happened to be coming in from a farm, and they forced him to carry Jesus' cross. Simon was the father of Alexander and Rufus, unquote. Hmm, interesting. So the gospel writer Mark mentions the same name as Paul does in his closing to the book of Romans. Why is that? 
for a variety of reasons. Tradition says that Mark wrote his gospel while he was living in Rome, or at least that his gospel was written to the Roman church. Well, if that's so, it would make very good sense that Mark would have included this seemingly incidental note in his gospel. Rufus would have been very well known within the church in Rome. Paul sent his greetings to Rufus in his epistle to the Romans. So the fact that Rufus's father was the one who was actually pressed into service to carry Jesus's cross, well, that would have been of great interest to the Roman church. And while we can't be sure of exactly when, it is obvious that at some point, Paul had spent some considerable amount of time with Rufus and with Rufus's family, including his mother. Now, one possibility for when Paul might have spent time with Rufus and Rufus's family would have been in the city of Antioch in Syria. And we learn that from Acts chapter 13, verse 1. In the contemporary English version, that verse says, quote, The church at Antioch had several prophets and teachers. They were Barabbas, Simeon, also called Niger, Lucius from Cyrene, Manian, who was Herod's close friend, and Saul. Saul, of course, is the Apostle Paul, before Luke, who wrote Acts, began to refer to him as Paul. We covered that in our last episode. But how does this verse give us any insight into the relationship between Paul and Rufus and Rufus's mother? Well, the first thing we need to note is that the name Simon is just another form of the name Simeon, basically the same name, kind of like Richard and Dick in our society. Well, the second thing that we have to know, we find in Acts chapter 11, verse 20, that one of the first recorded outreaches of the gospel beyond just the Jews was to the people who were called Grecians or Hellenists in Antioch. And we know that that outreach to those Grecians was done by men who were from the locations of Cyprus and Cyrene. So notice that we now know of two men from Cyrene who are mentioned by name in the Bible. There's Lucius in Acts chapter 13 verse 1, and there's Simon or Simeon from the Gospel of Mark chapter 15 verse 21. Now Cyrene, just by way of note, is on the northern coast of Africa in what would be the modern day nation of Libya. And also remember that Cyrene was mentioned in the list of places that had people who were attending the first Pentecost after Jesus' resurrection. So what you're saying is that Simon of Cyrene, who was compelled to carry Jesus' cross, may have been one of the people who made that outreach in Antioch. Cyrene is on the North African coast of the Mediterranean. Simon had come to Jerusalem for the Passover feast because that was one of three mandatory feasts for faithful Jews. Simon, like very many of the strangers who came to Jerusalem for the feast, probably had trouble finding a room in the city. So, he probably had to go to one of the outlying villages to stay while he was at the feast. He may have been going to the city from his lodgings when he encountered the procession leaving the city heading to the place where Jesus was going to die. Staying outside the city, he probably knew nothing about Jesus' trial that morning. Right. Simon of Cyrene, this is not Simon Peter, who was one of the disciples. Simon of Cyrene had no idea that he was going to encounter the crucifixion procession as it was leaving the gate of Jerusalem. The centurion who's leading the procession spots Simon coming in from some outlying village probably. And since the centurion can see that Jesus is starting to faint and is not going to be able to carry that very heavy cross all the way to the hill, the centurion just grabbed Simon of Cyrene and said, here, I want you to carry this cross. 
Now, Simon at that time may very well have thought that Jesus was just a common criminal, and Simon would have resented what he was being compelled to do. But I like to think that when Simon of Cyrene got close to Jesus, that Simon was touched by the soul-conquering power of Christ. And as such, Simon of Cyrene might very well have been, quite likely was, an eyewitness to the crucifixion. But it is also possible that Simon of Cyrene was an eyewitness to the resurrection. Let's remember what Paul said in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 6. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 6 says, quote, After this, Jesus appeared to more than 500 other followers. Most of them are still alive, but some have died, unquote. So, you are thinking that it's possible that Simon of Cyrene might have been among the group of 500. Yes. The Bible does not tell us exactly when that group of 500 saw the risen Christ, but many commentators and scholars think that it might have been at the time of the Ascension, when Jesus went back to heaven, and that's described in the book of Acts chapter 1. That chapter tells us that many of the future apostles were there, but it doesn't tell us who else might have been there. And because the Ascension happened right outside Jerusalem, it is very possible that a lot more members of the church were there at the Ascension. And it would make very good sense that Simon of Cyrene, having carried the cross, would have remained around Jerusalem through at least the end of the Passover feast. Well, by that time, Jesus had risen from the grave. One commentator, Alexander McLaren, has said, quoting now, It is possible that this may be our Simon, and that he who was the last to join the band of disciples during the Master's life and learned courage at the cross was among the first to apprehend the worldwide destination of the gospel and to bear it beyond the narrow bounds of his nation. Close quote. So you're following McLaren's line of thinking with respect to Simon of Cyrene. Simon of Cyrene was at Jerusalem for the celebration of the Passover feast, but he winds up encountering Jesus in a very unique way. Having encountered the living Christ, he stays in Jerusalem where, just a few days later, he might have encountered the risen Christ. He may have even been among the group that saw Jesus ascend and then stayed in Jerusalem for a little while longer and been one of the Cyrenians mentioned at Pentecost. Well, certainly that would have been a transformative experience. So transformative, Simon of Cyrene might have been in the group that began carrying the gospel outside of Judea to places like Antioch in Syria. Yes. And we know from Acts chapter 11 that Paul spent over a year in Antioch. Well, that would have been plenty of time for him to come to know Simon and his family. And of course, Simon's family would have included his sons, one of whom was Rufus, and it would have included Simon's wife, Rufus's mother. Uh, we also know that Paul returned to Antioch of Syria several times, even after he began his series of missionary journeys. So, Paul would have had the opportunity not only to get to know Simon of Cyrene and his family, but also to continuously renew his connection with the family through the years. So, if sometime during Paul's long missionary career, he found out that Rufus and his mother had moved from wherever they were, Antioch of Syria, but moved to Rome, well, it would make perfect sense that Paul would have sent his very sincere and warm greetings when Paul finally decided to write to the Roman church. Well, how long was it between the time Paul might have first encountered Simon and Rufus in Antioch and Paul wrote the letter to the Romans? Probably more than a decade. So Rufus and his mother would not just have been friends of Paul's, but old friends. 
I see what you mean, that the information in the greeting and the salutations isn't something that we can just gloss over. There's a whole story buried beneath those 15 or 20 words. Exactly. So let's remind everyone of the really big point we're making in this series. Contrary to the uninformed critics, the Bible is not filled with myths and fairy tales. The Bible does contain reports of supernatural events, but it reports those events in exactly the same way that it reports events that are considered to be mundane or secular. The entire story of the Bible, when it's examined carefully, is coherent and consistent. It's not only coherent and consistent with itself, but it is coherent and consistent with what we know from extra-biblical sources about the people, the places, the cultures, and the times in which the books of the Bible were written. As we said last time, it's a very simple principle. If you have a friend who you know to be honest and truthful, and then one day that friend tells us they saw something extraordinary, our first impulse should be to trust their report. We can trust their report because we have a track record in history with that person that tells us that person consistently tells the truth. Naturally, the opposite might be true. If we know someone who consistently lies, then we might have reason to doubt them, even if occasionally they tell us something that's true. Right. Character matters. And when the Bible's character is tested in ways where we can verify it, the Bible always stands up to the test. So are there any other items you want to point out from the greetings and salutations in Romans? Sure. Let's take a quick look at three other names that are in that list. Andronicus, Junia, and Apelles. Andronicus and Junia were, like Paul, Jews. Apelles is a common Greek name. Well, this helps us make the point that we made last time on our last episode of Anchored by Truth that in the book of Romans, Paul spent a lot of time discussing the relationship between the Jews and the Gentiles with respect to redemptive history and the emerging first century truth. So we can see from the names Andronicus and Junia, who were Jews like Paul, but then we can see that from the name Apelles, which is a Greek name, that the church in Rome was comprised of both Jews and Greeks, and Paul sent greetings to both. Also, the name Aristobulus is interesting. The name Aristobulus is the same name as one of Herod the Great's grandsons, who was known to be a friend of the Roman Emperor Claudius. Claudius reigned from 41 AD to 54 AD. The Book of Romans was likely written in 57 AD, but no earlier than 55 AD. So the inclusion of Aristobulus is interesting for a couple of reasons. First, we know that the name was in use during the period of history that was known in the city of Rome. But second, Paul says to, quote, greet those who belong to the household of Aristobulus. So that greeting is not necessarily to Aristobulus himself, but either to members of his family or servants of the family. This means by the time Paul wrote Romans, the gospel had been heard at even the upper levels of Roman society. Right. And among the list of names that Paul included in his salutation and greetings were names of people who were, in all likelihood, servants or slaves. The names Urbanus and Stachys, those were common slave names. Urbanus was a Roman name. Stachys was a Greek name. And in the greeting, Paul calls Stachys, my beloved. Now, that demonstrates that Paul was indifferent to the social or economic status of people that he associated with or that he ministered to. Paul brought the gospel to all levels of his society, whether it was high or low, rich or poor, slave or free. 
And one person on the greetings list in Romans, who may have been from a high level, is Narcissus. There was a person named Narcissus who was an aide to the Emperor Claudius who was forced to commit suicide by Agrippina. Agrippina was the younger sister of Emperor Caligula, the niece of the fourth wife of Emperor Claudius and the mother of Emperor Nero. She forced Narcissus to kill himself after Nero became the emperor, probably because he would have been a rival when it came to giving Nero advice. Yikes! As we've said, there are stories buried in this seemingly simple list of names. Yes, but this reinforces the primary reason that we are doing this Paul's Places series. The Apostle Paul wrote his epistle, which is our book, Romans, in and around 57 AD. Now, by the time Paul wrote the epistle to the Romans, he had been on the missionary road for over a decade, possibly up to as many as 15 years. Well, Paul had traveled widely through the Roman Empire, and Paul knew who was influential within the empire. He also knew how the people within the Roman world thought about things, and of course, he knew the essential elements of the emerging Christian faith as well or better than anyone. What you're saying is that when he sat down and wrote his letters, the epistles, that would become the books of our Bible, he did so carefully and thoughtfully. And that's just Paul operating as a human being. He was also under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. So when he penned these letters, he was teaching and encouraging throughout the letter, even in the parts we might tend to skip over, like the salutations and greetings. But what we see in these salutations and greetings reinforces what we know about the churches and the cities to which he was writing, their world, the things that they were dealing with generally and specifically, and what they needed to mature in their faith. Very well said. In Romans, Paul was writing to a church that was composed of Jews and Gentiles, Greeks and Romans, very well-educated leaders and ordinary servants or slaves. And Paul was writing to some people that he knew very well and some people he had never met. So, in the main body of the letter that Paul wrote to the church in Rome, he addressed major issues, weighty issues, issues of doctrine and principle. Those were issues that the people of that church, and frankly all subsequent churches, that people needed to hear about. And because Rome was the hub of the Roman Empire, Paul knew that whatever he sent to that church was going to travel far and wide. People from nations and provinces around the empire were going to come to Rome at some point or another and return home. So whatever Paul sent to Rome, Paul knew would probably travel literally to the far ends of the empire. So Paul knew when he was writing his letter to the church in Rome, Paul made sure that he was writing clearly and comprehensively in areas that he thought or knew might be confusing. The character of the Roman church the city in which the church was located, that made it sensible for him to do that, to be extra clear and extra comprehensive in the material that he was sending to him. As a matter of fact, the character of the church and the character of Rome at that time didn't just make it sensible for Paul to do that, it made it essential for Paul to do that. And when it came to deciding who to greet specifically and how to greet them, he was equally careful. He pointed out a couple of people who had been Christians longer than he had. He gave special credit to Rufus, whose family may have well played a unique role in church history. And he recognized people from all up and down the social status ladder. And he greeted women as well as men, which would have been somewhat out of the ordinary in that world. 
All of that points to the authenticity of the letter and therefore increases our confidence in the letter's accuracy and trustworthiness. Yes. Paul took more time in the book of Romans to discuss the interaction between Jews, Gentiles, the emerging Christian church, and the history of salvation than in any other epistle or book he wrote. But we always have to remember that Paul's concern for doctrine and principle never overcame his concern for the people. Paul wasn't just concerned about principles. Paul was always concerned about people. Paul wanted his readers to be as passionate about the gospel as Paul was, but Paul knew that passion for faith had to be tied to genuine love among believers. This harkens back to the Gospel of John, chapter 13, verse 35, when Jesus said, quote, By this, everyone will know that you are my disciples, if you love one another, unquote. That's from the New International Version. The New Living Translation says, quote, your love for one another will prove to the world that you are my disciples, unquote. Paul proved he was a genuine disciple by expressing love for the people he was writing to. First, he did so by writing them truth, even when he knew these truths would be hard on some of the readers. Second, he did so by forming friendships and remembering people by name. You know, in its day, the Roman church was unique. The Roman church was the earliest manifestation of an emerging church in the world's most powerful empire of the time. And because the church in Rome was at the center of the world's most powerful empire, the influence of that church was going to eclipse probably what most of the members thought about that church. That church was going to have outsized influence on the rest of the church, not only at the time, but down through history. So think about this for just a second. There were names of Roman slaves that have been commemorated for all eternity because of their participation in that church. The names of those slaves are, in many ways, truly exalted beyond the names of the vast majority of the world's kings, emperors, generals, presidents, corporate bigwigs, whoever. The New Living Translation of James chapter 4, verse 10 says, quote, Humble yourselves before the Lord, and he will lift you up in honor, unquote. In a very real way, in composing these greetings and salutations, that is what Paul did. Right. The letter to the church in Rome was a real letter written by a real man to real people, people who are just like us. Like all the parts of the Bible, Paul's letters are perfectly consistent with what we know about the larger context in which those letters were written. But those letters are not only consistent with the people, places, and facts of their time in history, those letters are also consistent with God's eternal proclamations. Part of the evidence of the truth of the book of Romans is the undesigned consistency that it shares with other books in the New Testament. That consistency makes the book of Romans coherent even at a very granular level, a level that most people are never even going to see. This sounds like a great time for a prayer. Today, let's listen to a prayer that we may all be faithful stewards of the resources that have been entrusted to us. Prayer to be a faithful steward. Almighty, everlasting, and eternal Father, you are the rock the only sure foundation on which we can build and hope to have our work survive. 
you alone can weave the twisted strands of our lives into a whole cloth that is suitable for your purposes. You alone are the sure and steady hand that preserves us from falling into the snares of the enemy and holds us up when we stumble. Lord, your word rightly tells us that the entire world and all it contains belong to you. It is so easy for us to forget this as we rush to and fro in our daily lives. As we go to our jobs, purchase items at the store, visit banks, and struggle with checkbooks and price tags, we easily forget that none of what passes through our hands truly belongs to us. You own it all, and no amount of striving or pulling can change this fact. Help us, Lord, to release what we cannot hold. Incline our hearts to you so that we treasure the blesser far more than the blessings. Our confidence is in him, and it is in his precious name that we pray and give thanks. Amen. We hope you'll be with us next time, and we hope you'll take some time to encourage some friends to tune in also, or listen to the podcast version of this show. If you'd like to hear more, try out crystalcbooks.com, where... We're not perfect, but our boss is.